Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 85. The crew is in attendance. Chaz, as always, accompanied by Seth. What's up, Seth? Oh, not much, Chaz. How's it going, Richard? I'm doing okay. Richard, how are you? Hey, guys. What's going on? It's going okay. So, recording on Labor Day because we're super hyped about Kaladesh. Even Richard's hyped. This is, like, (laughs) unheard of. No, but we we discussed this uh, before the cast started. Richard is really excited when it's non-return blocks, right? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what I figured. I'm super excited. Every card here is awesome, and we have like new races, we have dwarves, we have vibrant planes. Like none of this like return to Zendikar with Eldrazi and like nothing new. This is all brand new stuff, and they did an awesome job spoiling it at PAX this weekend. I think if we get through the entire 264 cards and not seeing a single Eldrazi, I think we we did it. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Like, you, I just I I want to see the full spoiler before we're in the clear. You know. <laughs> so no, but Kaladesh is great. A uh, huge amount of spoilers coming out of PAX uh, West over the weekend. Great events uh, in Magic the Championship. So we're going to talk about that. But uh, mostly it's going to be a spoiler episode, like we always do. It's almost like every every like fewer few casts now, it's like a spoiler episode. It's getting kind of out of hand. And yeah, just be in for this, because since announcement day, they announced all these sets, we're always going to have spoilers to talk about. So we enjoy doing it. Uh, so yeah, uh, spoilers, world championships, and fish mail. Uh, let's just jump right in. Uh, Kaladesh, initial thoughts? What, what are your guys' uh you know, what are your reactions to just the set overall before we get into specific cards and mechanics? Uh, Richard? Love it. I love the art direction. Uh, it's very vibrant and bright and nice. It's a, it's a nice change of pace from Innistrad where everything's all dark and gloomy. So going to this aetherpunk world and it's all these weird gizmos and stuff because it's an artifact block or plane. Totally awesome. And we got our new races, which I'm super excited for. Everything so far, I have no idea how it's going to play out because the mechanics are really weird and we haven't seen any of them before. So gameplay-wise, I'm unsure, but from a art and flavor perspective, everything is super-duper awesome. Yeah, and didn't they say that they specifically wanted this set to aesthetically be sort of the exact opposite of Eldritch Moon and Shadows of Innistrad, like very vibrant and very colorful? I remember the panel talking about that. Yeah, it's actually, they put a lot of thought in it because they wanted to do a steampunk set and they're like, well, if you have steam, you have, you know, in the typical steampunk, you have all of these factories generating smog and stuff, so it's all dark. So they didn't want that. So they replaced the steam with aether, which is, I don't know what it is, some mystical blue stuff. (laughs) So it just (laughs) lights the sky up in in this like vibrant world, right? So they, they solved pollution on this plane. I thought it was pretty cool when they talked about their world building and how they actually thought about all of this and, and went through it, and uh, we get to enjoy the end result here. Yeah. Seth, what do you think? I actually am kind of in the same place as Richard. From a flavor perspective and all of that aspect, the set is awesome. There's some really unique stuff. Gremlins, the return of dwarves. We just have some stuff we haven't seen either ever or in a long, long time. As far as gameplay, I'm just really unsure of how any of this stuff's going to play out. At this point, we, we've we seen a decent amount of the set, maybe overall like a, a quarter of the set, maybe not quite. And a lot of the mechanics 
are synergy-based to some extent or rely on other cards. So I'm not really sure how this set's going to work out as far as impacting standard. I'm really looking for powerful standalone cards at this point until we see more of the set. And because the mechanics are so weird and different and the tribes are so weird and different and don't just slot into the same old decks and the same old archetypes, I'm I have no idea what to make of it, but there are some super sweet cards. The art is awesome. The tribes and races are awesome. So I'm super excited for it, but I have no idea how it's going to turn out as far as standard is concerned. Wait, you don't want your Ulamog driving a Sky Skiff? Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm in the same place. uh, So kind of everyone agreeing here. I mean, we got dwarves. We got humans. We got dragons, demons, these weird Aetherborn creatures. I mean, it's just, I got to admit, I was pretty skeptical, like, going into this. I was like, oh, great, another artifact block. Like, what uh, what cards are going to break Affinity this time since we've been through two Mirrodin blocks? I guess I was a little biased, but it doesn't feel like an artifact set. I think we were discussing this before we started recording. It really doesn't. Like, yeah, there's artifacts. Obviously, there's a new type in vehicles. There's energy now, a new awesome resource. But overall, I, I really like the direction. Like you said, Richard, the art is fantastic. This kind of, you know, indie, you know, weird, but very intricate layered metal and all these weird little contraptions and inventions. It's pretty cool. And yeah, overall, I think it's a huge win. And I'm excited for it. I already. Like you said, Seth, picking out, you know, the couple cars that are standalone because I don't know where we are in terms of standalone, like self-contained or like these self-contained abilities like we had in the previous block, like Delirium and stuff like that. I want to see how that plays out once Kaladesh, the whole block is is spoiled. But for now, I, I think there's there's definitely some cards to work with. I think with that, we should just jump into the specific cards. Uh, we wanted to talk about the, you know, mechanic specific cards like uh, the energy vehicle and fabricate, and then just a few cars that we wanted to highlight on our own. So let's start with energy, uh, and we're going to talk about Demon of Dark Schemes. So take it away, Richard. All right, so energy is a new resource. It has a new symbol, and cards will give you energy, and then you can use that energy to uh, pay for stuff. So we have Demon of Dark Schemes, three black, black, black. So six converted mana costs, 5-5, five, five, Flying Demon. When Demon of Dark Schemes enters the battlefield, all other creatures get minus 2, minus 2 until end of turn. Whenever another creature dies, you get 1 energy. Pay 2 black and 4 energy. Put target creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control tap. Obviously, this is pretty reminiscent of Massacre Worm, only it's now a 5-5 five, five Flying and then you get some some added bonuses of the energy uh, ability. I mean, I really like the card just on a face value. I don't know where it fits in, but I love that the fact that the ability is an enter the battlefield ability. So obviously, there's some weird blinking or uh, reanimation shenanigans you can do there with like cards like Eldrazi Displacer or Ever After or what have you. Uh, this just seems pretty good. Just I don't really know what else to say about it. Uh, it doesn't kill specific cards like Reflector Mage or Spell Queller, but it does kill a lot of other stuff. I think it's going to be too slow for standard. Uh, Wizards loves printing two threes nowadays, and 
on turn six, if you're trying to kill a bunch of one ones or two twos, it's probably too slow. And so my guess is this is for more of a control deck, and the idea is you slam it down, wipe the board, reanimate something, and then like two shot them. I have a feeling it's going to be too slow. Uh, people, you know, we have like flaying tendrils and Kozilek's return and things like that, and the front side is okay. But you're playing that on turn three. When you're playing it on turn six, I think it's going to be a bit underwhelming, especially since the format will still have Emrakul and things like that. So my guess is this will be an EDH card rather than a standard uh, staple. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, my problem with it is I just don't know what it kills. Like, I know there's things that technically it kills, but the first place I would jump to would be like, oh, the humans deck. But then you consider that... By turn six, they're pretty likely to have played Valley as Lieutenant, always watching. So it just, the way the format lines up, I'm not sure how great negative two, negative two is, especially that late in the game. And this is one of the reasons that it's really hard to evaluate Kaladesh is... I think a lot of it does depend on energy production. Like, because I don't think the negative two, negative two is just going to be like a straight up board wipe, I think you're still going to want additional ways to produce energy, but if you have a lot of energy, paying three uh, actual mana to reanimate any creature from any graveyard is actually really powerful. So if you're at a point where you can do that multiple times, I could see it being a good control finisher, but I don't think I would want to play this assuming our future standard looks like our current standard just as a standalone card without at least some additional energy support. What do you guys think of energy in general? This is the first time they've added a new resource in a long time. And Mero says it's not parasitic. Uh, so what, what do you guys well, think about this? Well, this if Mero business? says it, then it must be true. No, um, I like it. I, I think it's always nice when you have additional resources to use. I don't know if we've seen enough of energy, like energy generators and just cards that use energy... Uh, I'd like to look at the whole set before I make a judgment, but I mean, it is it is nice. I mean, the the stuff that we have now, uh, you're gaining some pretty good value out of the energy that you're going to use on just a few cards that we have spoiled. Overall, I think I like it so far. I think the idea that energy is not parasitic is pretty laughable. I mean, <laughs> it's it is only in this set, and that's my biggest worry with energy is are we going to have enough good support cards to make it work? Like, a lot of the energy cards that we've seen look really powerful if there's ways to just consistently make a lot of energy, but we don't really know if they'll be enough because they only can draw on this one set. If you look at decks that really do well when they first come out in a new set, it's stuff like Mono Black Devotion, which... Yep. You, you just need black mana symbols, and every set has black mana symbols, so it can immediately come in and shake up the format. It's really hard for energy to draw from any of the other sets in standard, so I'm skeptical that there'll be enough good support for it to really do a whole lot, at least until Ether Revolt is in the format. Once we have two sets right. of energy, there might be a shot, but... Again, like you said, though, Chaz, it's a wait-and-see type thing. We don't know. Maybe there's super busted energy support cards that we haven't seen yet, and then it could be good. The other thing for me is I'm a little worried about making new resource systems. We kind of, in some sense, did this with colorless mana in Oath of the Gatewatch. 
And now we have energy, and I don't know if it feels weird to me if this is just the new normal and every block or every other block is going to have some weird new resource system. I don't know if I like that over the long term, but I guess we'll have to see what happens as more sets and blocks roll out. I'm yeah. going to say that energy is going to be bad. <laughs> and you got Even two after options, the two blocks? Two Even options after two sets? Oh, okay. Yeah, after two sets. So once it's all out, either it's going to be not useful, like no one's going to build a deck with energy in mind, and if you play any energy cards, it'll be incidental, or it'll be super overpowered, and we're going to have energy storm, and the format's going to be totally broken. Whenever you add a new resource system, it's very, very hard to balance it just right. Right, like think of all the time Storm has gone wrong. Think of all the time Fast Mana has gone wrong. Uh, Infect was never really fun. It's just really hard to add a new resource. The odds of them doing this correctly, I'm gonna say, are very. It's gonna be very low, and you're probably, it's probably gonna shy on the not useful. Like when they do madness and cards like that, they they tend to be super conservative because they don't want something broken like Storm. So I assume that most energy cards will be useless. Unless, for some reason, they just didn't see, you know, the the combo and there's some broken Energy Storm deck or something uh, in the format. But I'm guessing they're, they went super conservative and we're not going to see much of Energy. Unless the, the, the card is just incidentally good with Energy on it. Yeah, like, you yeah, know, so there's, there's some like, removal there's like no spell. Middle, there's no middle ground. It's it's right. kind of like Megamorph or something. Like, no one built a Megamorph deck. Right, right, right. I, I will play yeah. my Deathless Raptors because it's a good card and it happens <laughs> yeah. to have Megamorph on it. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of where we're going with that. Like, it was like Colorless Mana, right? Like, yeah, there was like a, a, a couple attempts at Colorless decks. Obviously, it was really successful in Modern because it had so much other older cards that it can draw from. But in Standard, it didn't really get up off the ground in like a huge factor there was that like blue red list that was decent for a little while but it was very short lived if it ever was kind of viable but yeah i'm i'm kind of agreeing that it's just going to be really hard especially especially with one set but i think uh i'm not bold enough to jump the gun like you are richard after not seeing the other sets all right let's move on to vehicles they've yeah. done it they have built cars <laughs> and ships they did it. in the multiverse. <laughs> a new <laughs> artifact type, which is Vehicle, and one of the cards they spoiled was Sky Sovereign Console Flagship, five colorless. It's a 6-5 legendary artifact vehicle, flying. Whenever Sky Sovereign Console Flagship enters the battlefield or attacks, it deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. Uh, crew three, tap any number of creatures you control with total power three or more, this vehicle becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. Yeah, so for anyone with questions, you can tap a 3-3, any combination of creatures to that total power 3. 3-1-1s, three one a 2-2 two two and a 1-1, one one, or a 3-3. Three three. Yeah, and you can use summoning sick creatures. So yes. Newly yes. cast creatures. Uh, the, the vehicles themselves have summoning sickness, unless they have haste, but you can use your summoning sick creatures to crew vehicles. So... My immediate thought on this is if Eldrazi Displacer and this ever get like online, it's pretty crazy what you can do with that card, with those two cards. Uh, other than that, I think it's I think it's fine. Uh, you wrote an article <laughs> which was uh, was pretty funny. It was uh, keeping up with the Kaladashians. <laughs> I, I, I good job, well done. Um, and I, I think your evaluation in there was kind of 
where I was, and I think we discussed this. We we kind of ended at the same place. It's like at worst, it's a five mana removal spell, which you know it's not that great. But at best, like you can start using this, you know, to flicker, or you know, you get additional uh, triggers when it attacks. You can use cards like Sylvan Advocate or Grim Flayer or even Gnarlwood Dryad. Um, it fuels Delirium, so. You know, it's bare minimum is not exciting, but I think once you start looking at it in a broader sense, a more meta sense with the cards around it, it actually can be pretty good. Uh, what do you think, Richard? I think it's pretty close to equipment. It looks exactly like equipment, except your creature doesn't die in combat, and uh, you potentially have haste uh, because you can play a summoning sick creature and equip. Uh, other than that, I, I don't know. It, it has the same enchantment problem where uh, they can just leave your you know, your battleship on the on the playing field and just remove all your creatures and you have nothing to do. So in that sense, you know, I don't think uh, we're going to see too many of these. You might see the odd one. You know, sometimes Batterskull makes it into standard, but you typically don't see a lot of equipment. You typically don't see a lot of enchantments. But once in a while, it'll be the perfect storm and you can build boggles or you'll have sort of X and Ys to play. So there might be one or two equipment, or uh, sorry, vehicles that are good. Uh, or there might be a vehicle deck filled with pilots. So pilots are another card that give uh, their, their creatures and they give special abilities to vehicles. So there might be some kind of weird vehicle pilot deck, but I don't think uh, just, you know, a, a arbitrary vehicle will be good. Like you have to kind of build your deck around it and it'll be more synergistic uh, rather than just a raw power card. Right. Uh, Seth? I think if any vehicle that we've seen so far is going to be playable, it's pretty clearly Sky Sovereign. In its best case, you can argue that it it is kind of a watered-down but colorless Inferno Titan if you can consistently like attack with it. Three damage when it enters, three damage whenever it attacks. So, And it's a 6-5 flyer, so it has some really powerful things going on. In general, I'm pretty skeptical of vehicles just because it's a well-known age-old rule of magic that you don't especially want cards that rely on other cards to be good. And these aren't like some synergy-based combo cards. They're just, they become big creatures is what the vehicles do. So there's a very real problem that your other stuff is dead or you draw this off of the top in the late game after a wrath and it just doesn't do much of anything. My biggest worry with Sky Sovereign in specific, because I think it's pretty powerful, and I think we can't understate how big being colorless is. Literally any deck can play this, which is pretty impressive, and that opens up a lot more possibilities than most cards just by being colorless. But Crew 3 is a scary number for me. Uh, A lot of the cards we've seen are Crew 1, Crew 2, and with those you pretty much draw any creature in your deck if you have an empty board and you can immediately activate your vehicle with haste with crew three your sylvan advocates reflector mages spell quellers if you just have one of those or draw one of those off the top you're still not going to be able to activate sky sovereign so that's kind of my concern and it's weird because even the pilots we've seen that richard mentioned like speedway fanatic it's a two one so if that's all you have and you peel that off the top of your deck, you still can't fly your Sky Sovereign because it's just not enough power to crew it. So that's my concern with Sky Sovereign. I think it's a really... I mean, it's almost just kind of like the Delirium vehicle. <laughs> you know, like, it. Do, I feel like it does so much in that deck. Like, 
all the creatures, like you said, Seth, yeah, crew three is kind of scary, but essentially all their creatures end up being larger than three, even their one drop. And it's an artifact, so it kind of adds a little bit of uh, incentive to use Delirium for this. I think a couple extra notes that I had uh, when I wrote, you know, wrote about this card is it does dodge Spell Queller, which is kind of relevant, and it does dodge uh, Reflector Mage because you know they're not creatures until you pilot them, and you can pilot them on your opponent's turn. You can you know set up some interesting board states where they might not want to attack because while your creature has summoning sickness and you know it's maybe not as large as a six five. You know, they might not want to attack into it uh, when they normally would have uh, if it was a smaller creature. I don't know. In terms of flavor, how do you guys feel about three goblins piloting a giant airship? <laughs> I mean, it's. I think on a lot of them it, it makes sense, but yeah, I think they had to kind of lower the amount to make most of these even viable, right? And they were kind of talking about that. Um, so... I think I'm all right with it, even if it is three goblins, like, or what what have you, or one single thing piloting a, a gigantic airship, which seems like impossible. But <laughs> the the thing is, outside of the summoning sick thing that we were talking about, which is a big benefit that you can kind of give your summoning sick creatures haste by activating a vehicle. But other than that situation, the payoff has to be pretty big. I mean, because when you think about it. If you have a tireless tracker that's a 3-2 and you're tapping it to activate one of these vehicles, you're not necessarily just getting a 6-5 flyer. You're kind of getting the difference between a 3-2 tireless tracker and a 6-5 flyer. So it's not just uh, all upside there because there is an opportunity cost to having to tap down creatures that could be attacking or could be blocking. So I think the vehicles have to be pretty far above the curve or have a really low crew cost. For, right. for the opportunity cost of tapping your team to be worth it. Well, on this one in particular, you're you're getting essentially a removal spell, and it's all upside on the turn it would have not been able to normally attack anyway. Yeah, it can't block, but presumably, I mean, in the case of Sky Sovereign, you'd be removing one of their, you know, one of their attackers that would have been attacking anyway. And and that's the reason that I really like this one more than the other vehicles is yeah. because most of them don't do anything on their own. But in the worst case, you get this really bad colorless fire impulse type card from Sky Sovereign. So it always does something, even when it's not really flying optimally or being piloted. Do we want to talk about the giant flavor fail here? This is literally a ship that's a city and it's a 6-5? <laughs> Right, it looks like this thing should be towering over Emrakul, <laughs> yeah. a Titan, but friggin' Oval Chase Dragster, you know, some drag car is a six one. Just as much power as a flying city. Right? Yeah. This should be the Death Star. This should be fifteen fifteen <laughs> crew ten. And like when you crew it, you take an extra turn and win the game. <laughs> like it should be the ultimate weapon. But uh, instead, it's a dinky six-five. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, I, uh... think, I, think you, I think you got the flavor fail. I was I was totally accepting three goblins piloting a giant ship. So I think you got me there. Um, I, I'm kind of surprised that you're you're letting that one slide. <laughs> you just need they have autopilot. You know, you can crew with a minimal skeleton crew, but this is a flying city. You know, this is this seems like it's. It's the ship to defend all of Kaladesh, and it doesn't seem to be doing a good job. Fair enough. Let's talk about uh, Fabricate. All right, so Fabricate is a new mechanic. 
Uh, we've seen it on a new rare, Cultivator of Blades. Three green green. So five converted mana cost. Creature, elf artificer. It's a one one. Does not pass a vanilla test. Uh, <laughs> fabricate two. When this creature enters the battlefield, put two plus one plus one counters on it. Or create two one one colorless servo artifact creature tokens. When Cultivator of Blades attacks, you may have other attacking creatures get plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is Cultivator of Blades' power. So it's a worse... What was that card from Ravnica, Seth? We just talked about this. Wild Beastmaster, I think? (laughs) Yeah. And a worse Turn Timber Ranger. (laughs) So there's that. I mean, Fabricate seems cool. It's not just your run-of-the-mill add plus one plus one counters to stuff, right, Seth? I mean, we talked about this as well. Um, it seems at least a little bit more interesting when you have that that dynamic of you can either boost something or make creatures out of the deal. Yeah, there's definitely some upside in the flexibility. It's I don't think Cultivator of Blades is a standard playable card. We, we will probably see some uh, standard playable cards with the Fabricate mechanic because what it does that's really nice is... If you're ahead, you can use it to kind of push your advantage by putting a bunch of counters on it, pumping up your team. But if you're behind, you can make some chump blockers to hopefully buy you extra turns to draw some cards. So that flexibility with Fabricate is really nice. I just don't think Cultivator of Blades is the card that's really going to show off its potential power in Standard. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all kind of in agreement with that. Uh, Richard, what do you think? Fabricate or Cultivator of Blades in general? Well, I think Cultivator of Blades is pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> potentially pretty good in EDH. You know, give your team plus X plus X. But I like Fabricate. The The whole reason for this flexibility is for crewing vehicles. You know, you yes. can uh, get enough 1-1s or pump, a, you know, your creature enough to get into that Sky Sovereign or whatever. So that's why Fabricate's around. I like it. All of these remind me of Pia and Kia Nalar or Kira Nalar, where, you know, it's, it's kind of just lingering souls you just play it get three tokens and ready i'm ready to block right so i think fabricate will play an important role i think there will be some better four or five mana fabricate cards and i think you'll see them perform the role of ishkana where uh, you don't really care about the text you just care about it's four bodies ready to block and i think we'll get that they're not as good as ishkana because they don't get uh flying or reach but just having a whole bunch of chump blockers to stabilize the board, I think, will be pretty good. So I expect to see uh, some fabricate in control decks or slower decks in the new standard. Also, we'll have to see if there's some more Artifact Matters cards. It would make sense. We got Inventor's Fair right now, which kind of wants you to have Metalcraft, essentially. It's not keyworded, but if there's more cards that care about how many artifacts you have, uh, sacking artifacts to do something, then Fabricate and the Servo tokens are going to be super important to powering those up. Yeah, same with Energy. A lot of the Energy cards say, you know, for each creature that dies or for each creature you control or something, so you can Fabricate to get multiple creatures to gain more Energy. Uh, with those other cards. All right, shall we move on to our Chase Planeswalker of the set? Yes, we should, because I think we have dissenting opinions. Sahili Rai, one blue and a red, three converted mana costs, three loyalty. Plus one, scry one, Sahili Rai deals one damage to each opponent. Minus two, create a token that's a copy of target artifact or creature you control, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. The token gains haste, exile at the beginning of the next end step. 
Minus seven, search your library for up to three artifact cards with different names, put them on the battlefield, then shuffle your library. All right, Seth, you talked about this in Keeping Up with the Kaladashians, so we'll go with you first. All right, so I should start off by saying that I do have a track record of thinking Planeswalkers are horrible, and then they end up being super good and expensive. So before I say my piece, you should know that. Uh, But I don't think Sahili Rai is very good. Uh, I just... I don't see the appeal of this card in standard. The plus one outside of control matchups where it is very good in a control mirror, but in a lot of matchups, it just doesn't do enough. The negative two, you can only use it once and the token goes away at the end of turn. So it just doesn't feel that impressive to me unless you can maybe abuse enter the battlefield abilities like with a goblin dark dweller or something. And ultimates aren't necessarily that relevant. It doesn't protect itself. It comes in with the least amount of loyalty, assuming you plus immediately out of any three mana planeswalker that's ever been printed, especially for ones that don't protect themselves. So there's just a lot of things that for me make me think this card isn't very good. There could be exceptions, uh, like copying a Snapcaster Mage can be very strong in situations like that. But overall, I don't think this is a very strong planeswalker. All right, so before we trash Planeswalkers, we always put the disclaimer, it's three converted mana costs, and they're always good. (laughs) I'm going to throw that out. I'm going to say this card is bad. Put it on the record. Uh, It does basically nothing. Uh, You know, you have to build an artifact deck, right? And we've seen from basically both Tezzerets, they were pretty much useless, even though they were so powerful uh, if you can get their synergies online. Whereas Sahili Ride doesn't even do anything, right? You need some weird combo artifact deck, and that's the only deck she'll go in. You can't just jam her into, you know, an it control deck, a Grixis control deck, or anything. Like, the ultimate does nothing unless you have three artifacts that win you the game. So, I'm going to say she's bad, she's not going to see play at all, unless there's some weird combo deck with her, where she's, you know, part of the, the synergy. Uh, but, you know, the, the plus one doesn't really win you the game doesn't progress you towards winning the game minus two doesn't do that much and minus seven requires you to have artifacts so i'm going to say she's too narrow she's going to be tezzeret but none of her abilities are objectively as powerful as tezzeret's and tezzeret never saw a lot of play and i don't think sahili's going to see a lot of play either i think she's good Uh so i'm (laughs) i'm the i'm the lone warrior here i guess on sahili's uh front I think everyone just assumes we see blue in the converted mana cost. We automatically think, you know, control, well, this and that and the other thing. I think if we start looking, you know, take that out and we start looking at Sahili Rai as an aggressive planeswalker that doesn't really have to protect itself because it's in an aggressive strategy. Um, It's essentially the blue-red version of another three uh, mana planeswalker that's kind of old at this point, but Ajani Caller of Prides, which didn't do... It didn't protect itself either, and essentially is doing the same thing that Sahili Ride does. It puts a plus one, plus one counter on something. It gave, you know, something Mighty Leap, you know, plus three, plus three flying, or what have you, and had a pretty decent ultimate that could end the game if it ever happened, which Sahili Ride, I guess, if we have good artifacts, could do as well. It's, it's nice to have it in the back pocket, but it's not, you know, what the card is about. So it's it's basically a Johnny Caller Frides, and that saw constructed play too. I mean, it's 
I mean, we always have this discussion, and I think it really is going to hold true that three mana planeswalkers have a hundred percent track record, like literally a hundred percent. I don't think there's, yeah, there's not been a three mana planeswalker that hasn't seen the light of day, at least in standard. I think Sahili Rai is is going to be that good as well. Maybe it takes a little bit longer to pan out because I think once Kaladesh block is fully revealed and we have Aether Revolt as well, then it probably will have more to, to work with, right? But at the bare minimum, you can still copy creatures, and there's a plenty there's plenty of creatures to copy in standard to get good value out of this. We probably have to see more one or two drops, but I mean you look at Goblin Dark Dwellers, you can do Reflector Mage, you can do Handware Garrison, Bedlam Reveler. There's there's plenty of cards out there that can benefit from, you know, enter the battlefield abilities. So I, I'm looking at it as strictly an aggressive card rather than trying to jam it in some combo or or control shell. To be fair, though, if you were to rank the three mana Planeswalkers, a Johnny Caller of the Pride is probably the absolute worst and least played out of all of them. Like, yeah, it did see some play here yeah, and sure. there in specific decks, but it is very far from, like, a format-defining card or even a, a format staple, I would say. So if that's the best case for Sahili Rai, that's still not that impressive for the face card of the set, in my opinion. Right. Is it is it like the premier, you know, three-mana walker that's going to define new standard? No. Is it Liliana? I mean, at this point, everyone was debating if Liliana was even going to be viable. I don't even think it's Liliana because... Liliana had the luxury of being printed in the second set when, you know, you had all these Delirium cards around it already, and it's basically a shoo-in in certain archetypes. Sahelia might be the reverse because it's in the first set, and we might not have, you know, we might not have the the cards around it to, you know, have it be as viable than it is, you know, might be what right now because we need more creatures that warrant copying at the one and two slot. Or we just need more artifacts, whether they be creatures or not, to be, you know, to, to reevaluate this card. So, so question for both of you. You're building a blue-red deck, got some burn spells, some, I don't know, uh, disruptive elements. You have to choose this or Fevered Visions. Is it really ever correct to pick Sahili Rai over Fevered Visions in a deck like that? I think it's good enough to to wrestle some slots away from it. I mean, it, it it depends. Again, like, could it be interesting to copy a, a Thermo Alchemist on one turn and get a few spell extra damage in there? You know, if you have a few spells, you might not be able to do it on turn three, but later on in the game you could. I, I, I just, it's three mana, but it kind of feels like you don't play it on turn three almost, which is kind of weird. Yeah, the thing is I don't, it's basically not a three mana Planeswalker because... The, the threat of three mana planeswalkers is you throw it down, uh, you interact with them, they can't hit your planeswalker, and you ultimate. Uh, so Sahili Rai's ultimate seems pretty bad unless you're playing a dedicated artifact deck, so that, that threat is not there. It feels like it's the Tibble thing where they're like, oh, okay, you plus one a couple times, and then they just kill it like four turns later. It has to be some, some artifact deck. I'm thinking like maybe blue-red vehicles... But then you can't even copy a vehicle because it's not crude, and then you can't do anything, so that doesn't go. Uh, maybe energy, like Aetherworks Marvel or something could work with this. You just get three artifacts in, uh, a bunch of energy gets created, and then you use your energy to win the game somehow. 
But in terms of just general, like, putting it into a tempo deck or a burn deck or something, I think this card does absolutely nothing. I think you would play Fever Visions uh, mid-range or control strategies. I think you'd do that. But, again, if you had some artifact deck, like if Lantern Control or something was a standard deck, then you could play Saheeli Rai. I think you really do need the artifact synergies to, to make her work. Yeah, and I, I think that's still fine. I'm I'm just kind of championing the fact that it's not completely unplayable and garbage. I mean, I think it has its uses, and I think it can see play. I mean, definitely in standard. I don't know about other... I can't, you know, argue outside of standard, but... I mean, you know, not to sound like a broker record, but it, this conversation kind of sounds similar to the one we were having with Liliana the Last Hope. We, we saw upside uh... to her, but we didn't call her good. Whereas this one... Is ambiguous, but I see no upside. <laughs> oh, okay. This one, you know, we we told the lab of the Leon. We're like, uh, okay, three three mana planeswalkers have been good. We'll we'll say reserve judgment. <laughs> so, this one, I'm just like, nope. <laughs> so, okay, well, I, yeah, we'll revisit we'll revisit when the second yeah. block comes out, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it. I could probably go back to the podcast where we talked about Nissa and like, oh, who wants to make zero one plants? That sucks. I think we said Nissa <laughs> was know? good, but I don't remember. But uh, Ch- Chaz, yeah. Chaz, as the supporter of Sahili. Let me ask you then, financially, okay. 25 bucks on no, Star no, City Games. No, no, the, You're not buying it 20, 25 bucks then? Mm, no. Okay. I, I think it, I can concede the fact that it's it's likely overhyped, and I probably wouldn't be buying them at $25, but, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong here, but um, I, I'm, I'm saying it's good, I just don't know where the price point lands. It just feels like 25 is probably too much for this. I think we look at uh, more of, you know, Nissa again, we just talked about it. it was kind of a niche roll, you know, the 13 to $15 range. And that's kind of where Nissa, you know, ended up. Yeah, I could I could see that in the like $10, $15 range. I, yeah, so, something like that, yeah. So, so, so I don't think we necessarily disagree that much about it when it comes right down to it. I think sure. uh, you're just, you have a more, you're, you're arguing from the glass half full kind of side, and I'm arguing more from the glass half empty kind of side. But I think right. when it comes right down to it, we somewhat agree that she could see playing specific decks, but there's not really an obviously home, an obvious home, and she's probably a little overpriced during pre-sales. Yeah, yeah, we're meeting on a middle ground. I- I'm not. I mean, I think Richard's going full. No compromise. But I mean, I just, uh, it's a, it's literally a beaten to death argument here, but it's like literally a hundred percent track record on three mana walkers. It's like never fail. There's always an exception to the rule. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we haven't seen one yet. So, and there's been a good, good uh, list of three mana walkers. I mean, Domri, Ajani, Nissa, Liliana, both Lilianas actually. Domri I mean, it's very niche. I mean, if you, if your argument is it's going to see some play, then I'm, I guess because there's Seth will play it <laughs> and it'll show up somewhere. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. no. <laughs> but I don't think it'll be it'll crack the staples list in standard. For example, I think it'll be okay. some niche deck maybe. That, that's that's where I'm drawing the line. Yeah, if, but yeah, you can find some use for her somewhere. If your definition okay. of playable is I will play it, your bar is way too low. All right, let's move on. Here's my favorite card in the whole set: Gonti, Lord of Luxury. Gonti. Oh, yeah is a new type. He's an Aetherborn Rogue legendary creature. Oh, not he. They, they don't have gender, so it's just an Aetherborn Rogue. 
Two black black. Two three death touch. When Gonti Lord of Luxury enters the battlefield, look at the top four cards of target opponent's library, exile one of them face down, then put the rest on the bottom in a random order. For as long as that card remains exiled, you may look at it, you may cast it, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast. Yeah, this is, it's a really powerful ability. Uh, I mean, it's just, that is kind of nuts. Uh, I don't know if it can see play in constructed uh, settings, but this seems like an absolute like, commander bomb. I think it's a commander card in my opinion, but it is okay. a really sweet one. I really like stealing stuff from opponent's decks. That's a, a fun theme in commander with like send triplets as your commander or something, and this would definitely work for that. It's also pretty powerful potentially as a commander because you can use that repeatedly. It has death touch, so you're going to be able to trade it off at least with something way bigger than it, and then you cast it again you get to exile four more cards, get something else to cast from your opponent's deck. So I think it's really sweet in Commander. I'm just not excited about a 2-3 for 4 necessarily in Standard, but I could be wrong. Yeah. It is a powerful ability, and but I think as a 2-3, it's just a little below the curve as far as stats for Standard. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I think the card will suck in Standard. I, I don't know <laughs> that. Paying four mana to yeah. look at your opponent's deck and try to cast something is where you want to be, but it's a new race. The art is amazing. It reminds yeah. me of like Skyrim or Dark Souls, you know, the actual traditional fantasy. And it's just so sweet. I want to make Aetherborn EDH. I want to make Rogue Tribal. It's just so sweet. It just looks like some guy from the Thieves Guild from Skyrim. So <laughs> I love it. It's just a new, a new race, and we're going to get to see all kinds of characters from this race. Apparently Ashiok is not Aetherborn. Uh, someone said that, so uh, it'll be interesting to see if we find any more Aetherborn popping up in other planes or as planeswalkers or something like that, but I'm super excited for this new race. Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, next card, another returning race with a new color identity. Uh, Depala Pilot Exemplar. One red and a white, so three converted mana costs, three, three. Legendary creature, Dwarf Pilots. So we now have Boros Dwarves. Uh, other dwarves you control get plus one, plus one. Each vehicle you control gets plus one, plus one, as long as it's a creature. When Depala Pilot Exemplar becomes tapped, you may pay X. If you do, reveal the top X cards of your library. Put all dwarf and vehicles uh, from among them in your hand. Put the rest on the bottom in any order, or in a random order. You know what, you know what I'm most excited about this card? You know what has me most excited is that we don't have to hear... Well, where's my vehicle EDH commander for the next, like, five years? <laughs> they did it already. It's it's done. It's out of the way. They It's almost like they just they took all the criticism from no werewolf lord in Innistrad and just was like, you know what? We're going to cover our basis. Here's a vehicle lord. It's also coincidentally a dwarf lord. Boom. Don't have to worry about it ever again. I am all in on Depala. It's actually just really a sweet card. But I just, it's so great that, like, we never have to hear about where's my vehicle EDH deck, because here it is. I like that they can just make, I mean, this isn't a construct or a standard card, a tournament card, but I like that they can kind of get the Dwarf Legend Commander card and the Vehicle Commander card out of the way in all one shot, <laughs> so we're not wasting yeah. multiple slots on it. <laughs> I think the card's really sweet, and it's cool that Dwarves are back, but... 
you just can't play legendary lords and constructed. Like, you want to be able to stack up your lords and play multiples, like Lord of Atlantis and Master of Pearl Trident and Merfolk. Being legendary means you can't really do what you want to do with lords, but it is really sweet for commander. And the ability in commander to pay that mana to search for all your dwarf and vehicle cards when it attacks is actually pretty sweet because you can usually find someone where you can make a profitable attack, dump all of your mana into that, and if you're heavily tribal, you're probably drawing multiple cards uh, with the X ability on Depala. I wouldn't write this off for standard because if you get to untap with this, you attack, pay four mana, and just, you know, draw four cards, that's pretty hard to lose from, right? So, you know, if there's actually enough dwarven pilots and a dwarf vehicle (laughs) deck exists... I think the fact that she's a legendary lord doesn't really matter. That's such a powerful ability, right? To, you know, pay X to get the top X cards and just get all dwarven vehicles. So I think that makes up for it, you know, if there's actually dwarven pilots and vehicles you actually want to play in standard. I like where you're going with this, Richard. I mean, all we need is a solid one and two mana dwarf, you know? We're going on curve here. It's pretty good. You can go, like... (laughs) <laughs> one drop dwarf into like sky skiff. It's a two three flying crew one, and then you oh, play like a two okay. two dwarf, and it gets plus one plus one, so you can get into your sky ship sovereign thing and like shoot people, prime people titan styles. It's it's gonna work. <laughs> I think I think you're onto something, Richard. I'm glad dwarves are back. I really love that race. It's been a long time since we've seen them. Yeah, they really turned white for some reason, so they now live in plains instead of mountains. Yeah, that's... their argument was teamwork or something, but I I, I don't well, know, man. These dwarves just live in the plains. They don't have the shelter of their mountains anymore. Well, I mean, if you, I guess if you've seen Lord of the Rings, right? They they teamwork. I <laughs> I mean, re- really though, as far as creature types, we got Etherborn rogues we got dwarf pilots we also have gremlins camels like the creature types are just so sweet in this set so many things that we haven't seen in a really long time yeah uh, i'm really excited whoever whoever got in on foil dwarven recruiter knew something we didn't because <laughs> <laughs> uh people are really stoked for their dwarven uh edh tribal decks i guess all right, all right on right, to so the best for last Enemy Fastlands, Spire Bluff Canal, Inspiring Vantage, Concealed Courtyard, Botanical Sanctum, and Blue Marsh. So these are the completion of the Scars of Mirrodin Fastlands. Uh, So they enter the battlefield tapped unless you control two or fewer other lands, and they tap for enemy-colored mana. Black-white, red-white, blue-red, green-blue, black-green, just so everyone knows. Richard, you're, you're super excited. You were, like, bouncing off the walls... I'll let you, you know, we want to hear from you. What do you think? Modern will not be the same. So (laughs) this will shake up modern in the same way that banning Splinter Twin or unbanning Ancestral Visions or whatever. Uh, Mana is a very thickly thing in modern. And, you know, these are not budget substitutions for your fetch lands or your shock lands. You will always play them. But they enable a lot of three mana mana bases and two mana mana bases. So Abzan has traditionally not been played that much because its mana base was inferior to Jund. You know, if you want to turn one thought season, uh, you're going to shock yourself, so you go down to 15. Whereas Jund has the opportunity to play Black Cleave Cliffs, which can tap for a red and a black, enabling you to thought season, inquisition, or bolt. Uh, so now Abzan can play the uh, black-white one, and they can do the same thing with Path to Exile. So this will enable Abzan to have a smoother mana base uh, things like blue-red Delver, blue-red anything, 
you can now play. So I think this will enable a lot of different decks in Modern now that their mana base gets a lot better. And now we basically have quote-unquote perfect mana in Modern. Today there's asymmetry. You can only play certain color combinations because of the lack of fast lands. Now you have all lands available in all colors, so you can play whatever colors you want. So I think this is a game changer for Modern, and we're going to see the Modern metagame shake up uh, when these, these cards get released. I'm... I'm... Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really impressed. I think that's a really good take, Richard. Seth, I'm slightly less excited than Richard is. I think, <laughs> I think that they're. <laughs> I, I think everyone's slightly less excited than Richard. What? Abzan. <laughs> no, I don't. No, no I'm Willie Adel just lost no. his. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, man? No, I, I mean, I mean, like. You just are the most excited, so there's like no way anyone could be more excited than you. Willie Adel is more excited. Than <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> They've done it. They have fixed Abzan. <laughs> yeah, they really did, though. Uh, Seth, yeah, continue. I think they are a very big deal for Modern, and I agree that they make decks better, and they could, as Richard suggested, shift things from Abzan to John and kind of fixes a format in that sense that you're not going to be making your deck choices or your splash color choices based mostly around your mana base because everything's equal now. I'm a little bit skeptical that new decks are going to emerge because the mana the mana in modern before was already so good. Like yeah, maybe your mana for enemy color decks was a 8.5 out of 10 and for allied color decks it was a 9 or 9.5 out of 10 but I don't know if this improvement is enough that just all of a sudden new decks emerge uh, because these are now in the format they do make decks better like Infect is going to love having Botanical Sanctum the blue red one's going to see play in a ton of decks there's so many decks that want the untapped mana uh, so I think those ones are big, and as Richard said, Abzan will like Blooming Marsh or Concealed Courtyard. As far as standard, I think they're just pretty much straight-up swaps for the Painlands. Uh, whether or not they're that much better, I think, is up for argument and depends on how fast your deck is. Faster decks will like these better, slower decks might prefer the Painlands. And the big loser in standard is the Eldrazi, I think, uh, just because they're yeah. going to be super hard to cast now, unless you're like one-color Eldrazi decks, which I think we talked about last week a little bit. Yeah, we did. We did talk about that. Yeah, this is not a huge boon for Eldrazi. I, I mean, outside of very dedicated colorless Eldrazi lists, I, I mean, it's going to be very hard to find or splash, you know, additional colors. I mean, maybe one color, and that's probably it, like mono red Eldrazi or something like that. But, yeah, with these, I think it kind of solidifies that. So we did talk about that, Seth. Uh, in terms of modern, I'm really excited. I, I think this, contrary to what other people may say or joke about, I, I think this is a great way to alleviate some of the pressure on the on the fetch lands, the old fetch lands from Zendikar that didn't get reprinted, because I I think now that with with this like newfound mana base, there's not so much emphasis on that. Like you can now, you know, you have the the fast lands that you never had before, so you don't necessarily have to jam or rely on on a heavy fetch base and and basically kill yourself before you know you do anything. Like Abzan, it was a it was a huge problem because you really couldn't reliably cast your your cards without damaging yourself. And that can always, always put you behind when Jund is playing Black Cleave Cliffs and you're playing your, 
you know, your overgrown tomb or, you know, your land of war wastes. So, so do you guys think that because of these cards, though, there will be less total fetch lands played in modern, like our decks going to go from whatever, eight fetch lands down to six fetch lands to accommodate these, or is it the other lands that are going to be getting cut? I'm curious, Richard, how will you be building your Abzan mana base now? Like, what does this do in practical terms? Well, looking at the World Championship deck list, most people played two Twilight Myers uh, and ten fetches, or nine fetches, a Woodland Cemetery, and two Twilight Myers. So my guess is the Woodland Cemetery and the Twilight Mire go. So you go down to one Twilight Mire uh, and play uh, anywhere between eight and ten fetches. So right now, Twilight Mire uh, is kind of the pseudo-untapped land that taps for both mana, except if your other land is colorless, you're very sad because you can generate nothing. <laughs> so uh, the, the fast land, I think, would, would fix that. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Because the, you're basically playing like one or two of the, the shock lands. You can't really cut any of those shock lands. So you got your basics, you have your utility lands. So it's usually the, the untapped buddy lands and the Twilight Myers and stuff like that that will get replaced with the new Fastlands. So, oh man, I can't think of the card's name. Do you think like the Innistrad cycle of Buddy Lands is going to take a hit now? Some of those are pretty expensive. Are they going to be in less demand now that these are there as a replacement? I would think so. Like, Jun doesn't play any of those because they got Black Cleave Cliffs, whereas Abzan sometimes does. So I think those would be played. Uh, you might see some shocks getting replaced or fetches getting replaced in decks like you are where you want non-islands so you don't get stuff like choked or uh merfolk lorded out so those might replace actual island cards but in general i think uh the the buddy lands were suboptimal versions of these fast lands so uh, if you're playing those you would replace them with with the new fast lands it, it seems like with like the thing ascension deck the the thing in the ice stormy pyromancer ascension deck that uh, these have to be just strictly, well, not strictly better, but almost always better than playing Sulphur Falls, for example, in that deck. Because you're only playing 18 lands, and that's one of the things about yeah. a decent amount of decks in Modern is you don't even want to be playing your fourth land in some decks. In fact, the Storm decks like Thing Ascension, some of the aggressive decks, uh, so it's kind of a free roll in decks like that because if you're playing your fifth land and it's coming into play tapped, you're probably losing anyway because you're flooding out. Yep. I, I think the fact that you can uh, conceivably drop fetches is, is probably enough, like I said, to, to create this kind of downward... Just some, just to alleviate some pressure. I'm talking more of just prices. It's almost like they kind of they they can delay printing fetch lands, and I think obviously we're going to see them again. I think this is a great way to kind of pseudo reprint fetch lands without having to reprint them, since Battle for Zendikar is still in standard with the uh, the uh, BFZ lands, and they didn't want that again. Yeah, and for budget reasons, uh, what's this? What's the Twilight Mire cycle called? Filter, uh, lands. filter lands. Filter, filter lands. lands. They're like 40 yeah. bucks a pop. And yep. their main purpose is to be untapped lands of two colors. And the the fast lands accomplish most of that. Like you can't get double black or double green from the fast land, but it's just colored untapped mana. So from a budget perspective, you could totally replace all the Twilight Myers with the fast lands and uh, kind of get 90% of the value right there. And I Absolutely. mean, from a budget perspective, if you're looking at... Uh, 
$85 a piece for Scalding Tarn, and your option is to buy a $5 <laughs> fast land. Like, yep. even that substitution, anything below, like, I'm trying to win a GP level is probably a smart choice for a lot of people. So, Seth, when should I pick up all of my enemy fast lands? I don't imagine them going much below $4, maybe 3 to $4 at their low point. And right now, pre-sales started at like $5. So if you think you want them to play in standard, you're not going to lose too much by just buying them now. But I expect they go down a dollar to uh, a month or two from now before increasing again uh, over their time in standard. That would be my guess. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, I think it's... It, I... What were the the Shadowlands like? Two to three bucks. I mean, they really didn't even go down below that. Yeah, I think and those are was... Shadowlands. So I don't see them going down much past five, you know, four or five bucks. So I, I think honestly, the the presale prices on these are are pretty good. I mean, I don't see them going down much below than where they're going for now. Should we move on to the World Championships? Sure. So congrats to Brian. He took it down, BBD. He was really stoked about it, and it was it was a really great accomplishment. I mean, I, I think I think the event was covered well. Um, I know you guys wanted to talk about coverage, uh, but I, I thought the I thought the event was overall pretty good. Um, I know it was a little boring for you, Seth, but <laughs> I do like seeing uh, the, this kind of resurgence of Abzan and seeing like Grim Flayer a new card that's kind of really inserted itself into modern uh, along with collective brutality uh two really great cards uh that now have in my opinion solidified themselves as modern cards um so it was fun to watch and i think overall the the event was great and it comes with uh lsv kind of retiring uh so it's kind of sad to see him not playing magic games but he will be in the coverage booth and i i think that's kind of like a neutral for people that loved watching LSV play. Well, now we get to watch LSV do coverage, which is basically just as good. Uh, everyone loved LSV for the coverage. So, uh, yeah, um, congrats on fatherhood, LSV. And I think everyone's still really stoked to hear you in the, the coverage booth. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think, Richard? Yeah, I think you, you covered everything. Uh, I don't know why everyone decided to show up and play Abzan, uh, <laughs> but no one really agreed on what the correct build of Abzan was, uh, even some Jun players. But there were a lot of variations. Uh, some people went Noble Hierarch. Uh, almost everyone had Grim Flayer. Collective Brutality showed up uh, as a one or two of. Liliana the Last Hope was in a lot of the decks. Uh, but some decks were going more towards Delirium with uh, Bobbles and stuff like that. Uh, other car, uh, Other decks still had Bob in them. So we had a full spectrum of Abzan, and uh, basically like what half the field was Abzan, or 75% of the field was Abzan yeah, or something. Yeah. It was some ridiculous amount of Abzan. So that's pretty interesting, and Grim Player went through the roof because of this. Uh, apparently everyone discovered they wanted to play Abzan this particular weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, LSV retiring is kind of sad, but he did say when he comes back he's going to win his fourth Pro Tour top eight in a row, so we'll wait for that. And uh, it'll be good having him on the booth on Sunday. So he's a direct replacement for Randy Bueller. So uh, we get to see him all the time now, and not only when he scrubs out of the top eight and <laughs> joins at the last minute with his suit from his briefcase or whatever, just pulls it out of nowhere and runs onto the booth. Yeah. So we'll see him all weekend now, which is uh, going to be really fun. 
Yeah, I mean, the the LSV thing is, I think it's really awesome. Like, yes, I love watching LSV play, but I think it's good for him, and I'm sure that having uh, a child now is probably part of his decision, so it's probably awesome for him to have more free time with his family. And it's awesome for us because he is really top-notch when it comes to commentary. Like, out of all the people you could get to be doing commentary full-time, LSV would have to be right near the top of that list. So it should really pick up the coverage. And the other exciting part of this weekend, for me, was Wizards really went all out. Like, there was some weirdness with the schedule, like some of the days of the World Championship all the magic action was like one draft pod that they did for a few hours, but they really went all out with Kaladesh and with the spoilers in these panels. And they had a lot of interesting people. They flew out community members and different content producers to spoil cards in unique ways. And we've seen bits and pieces of that. And before, like they did, uh, I think it was last year. They had like one panel with someone moderating it and it was fine, but they really went all out with multiple panels throughout the weekend so instead of just being the tournament we got to see like this whole programming alignment or array of Kaladesh stuff on top of the world championship stuff and it was really well done I thought for the most part Uh, so all around I think this was the most impressive event I've seen for Wizards coverage probably ever so that made me happy and it should get even better with LSV being coverage full time Yep. Agreed. I like the matching vests. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, oh man. You the vest look was uh, was great. So one big fail for the weekend. You shouldn't have said that. Apparently <laughs> Wizards decided that they were going to get people uniforms for the event of the World Championship. However, they apparently just ordered all like double XL uniforms and made everyone wear the same size, no matter what size the actual person was, because they were like super big and baggy to the point where like Owen Turtenwald was wearing his hoodie over it because it was just so bad looking because they were so misfitting on him and then they all looked exactly the same so it had like the sponsor's name or logo on the front but they were all like the same uniforms no matter what team you were technically on so that part of coverage and the event could have improved but otherwise it was very good all right we have a lot of fish mail so let's go rapid fire to prevent our podcast from being two hours long (laughs) need some uh, barbecue in me (laughs) at tom simons assuming uh, Cavern of Souls is reprinted in Modern Masters 2017. What happens to Foil Cavern of Souls? Is the answer different depending on the rarity of rare or mythic? I I think it does absolutely... I think the answer changes if it is printed at mer- or rare or mythic. But uh, usually foils don't... You know, they don't... The, the prices tend not to come down that much even with a reprinting, but... I mean, with a printing at rare, it will be affected a little more than it would be at mythic. I mean, it'll still be affected. It's just probably not as much as just the normal non-foil copy. Uh, Another thing to consider is the art. If it looks exactly the same, that might hurt prices more than if it looks different and has some new art. So, yes. All right. Next question, also from at Tom Simons. What do you think of Noble Hierarch at 55 to 60? Sell? I think so. I think that is probably another card that they can 
throw into MM17. Yeah, that was going to be my answer. I would not be surprised to see it get reprinted again. And it dropped a lot when it was first reprinted. So I would say the safest thing to do would be to sell it. All right, next question from Holic. Can you talk about the, quote, old days of magic? Uh, what rules were harder to enforce? That is the question. <laughs> The old days of magic. So Seth from Ravnica. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was it Ravnica so, or Theros? I forgot. Theros. Theros. Oh, Chaz, that was Ravnica. <laughs> Theros. Uh, I will say, I might not have been playing in the old days, but I consider myself kind of a student of the history of the game. Uh, so I know that cheating was a much bigger problem back then. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there was just kind of a general attitude that if you could get away with something, almost it wasn't cheating or that was the norm, even at competitive level play, that you should get every edge you can and take advantage of it, even if it was a little sketchy. And that's one reason people love Chris Pakula so much is he was one of the big crusaders for fair play back when that just wasn't the norm on the professional circuit back in the 90s. Yeah. And, and when we say Ravnica, it's return to Ravnica, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chaz. <laughs> uh, Richard, you're you're even older than, than I am when it comes to magic history uh, when you were slinging, you know, alpha and beta. But uh, <laughs> what, what was it like in the, in the way old days of, uh, you know, Juzam Jin? Uh, when I played, we had 60-card decks, 20 lands, we curved around Sarah Angel, and <laughs> apparently we all mana weaved because after every game we would take a card, put a land between two, and then put another two cards, put a land, <laughs> shuffle very loosely, and call it a day. Uh, good news is we didn't play in the Pro Tour, and that was Kitchen Table Magic, so you know knowledge back then was a lot spottier. You couldn't really net deck because the internet didn't really exist. <laughs> it yeah. was just uh, you know BBS board somewhere, and no one really knew about magic theory. You know, at that point, you know, Sly wasn't even invented. The, the concept of a mana curve wasn't even there. So it was very different back then. And you just played for fun. And you just played angels versus dragons. It, it was a, a more naive time before before all of Magicka evolved. <laughs> I think that that's really the... the like, I, that was such a good word to use. I mean, it was it really was naive. Like, there really wasn't a huge like competitive circuit back then I mean it, there was a kind of a competitive thing like you said uh, Richard it was cheat you know and you if you get caught you know it was kind of not even a big deal like you gotta whatever it wasn't even really anything back then compared to what it is now and really everyone did it it's just you have to kind of catch me right um, but yeah it was mostly I mean me personally it was a lot of kitchen table um you know, after a while, we did kind of go to like shop tournaments, but even those were like not nearly like what was a you know D- what was DCI like what was a judge like people just played like decks. I didn't even know what like what standard was. Like I don't even think like most people would play like these sanctioned games. People would just play, and then like the winner would win packs and like stuff like that. So it wasn't until like later on in my teens that like the game started evolving. But before that, it was like Merfolk versus Homerids. You know, Avatar of Might was, like, my big thing. You know, giant creature, green creatures would trample. That's that's kind of where I lived. It was definitely naive. I, I, I really like that term. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> I'd make more jabs about Seth and return to Ravnica, but I think we should move on. At Digaholic, yeah. again, did any of you ever play Star Wars CCG? All of this new Kaladesh stuff reminds me of it. So uh, vehicles not... are in Star Wars, right? Is yeah, that that I, yes, I did not play Star Wars, but I know of the game. And yeah, it definitely seems like we're jumping into some pod racers and uh, having a good time. Yeah, vehicles were, were a thing in that game. Yeah, I never played it. I, I heard yeah. of it. came out around the same time I started playing Magic. Star Wars CCG was big. And I remember, I, I, I know I have a deck somewhere. Are there valuable cards? I have no idea. But I had a deck, and I played it a couple times, but uh, I never really stuck to it like I did with Magic. Yeah, it was pretty much like a triangle of either you played the Pokemon uh, game, the card game, you played Magic, or it was like Star Wars. And I picked Magic and Pokemon. <laughs> so I didn't really get into Star Wars. Sorry, go ahead, Seth. No, I was just going to say that, that I haven't played it either, but that's probably because I didn't start playing card games until Theros and uh, <laughs> wasn't around for Star Wars. <laughs> you probably played, like, the Episode 7, right? The Episode 7. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Perfect. Oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> uh, next question. At Der Ubergeist. Regarding New Modern, which I'm going to preface again, doesn't exist, then we kind of just made it up. So from which block and set will it start from, and when will this format come into fruition? I would say that if this happens, important to say if, I don't think it would happen for a few more years, and the two most likely starting spots that I could see would maybe be Magic 2010, with the changeover in the core sets and a lot of changes in rules, and I think eventually, if this is a path that Wizards goes down, I think they'll want to have all holographic rares with the with the new security measures for forgery purposes. But I think this is, we're talking, if it happens, four years, five years, ten years down the road that we'd start to see these changes. Man, people really love this theoretical modern <laughs> format that we talked about one time. I, I would think ideally it would be the new border going forward. If, if this were a thing at some point in the future, undisclosed. It, it would probably be a security thing where they want every card to have the holographic foil. So whatever that cutoff is. Yeah. Uh, next question from at Shitesby. Haven't asked Fishmail in a while. Haven't had any good questions. Just wanted to say hi. Hi, hey, Shitesby. Hello. Hello. Uh, next question at Rag3249. With Zendikar flashback drafts on Moto over, are Zen fetches a good online spec? If so, do you like some more than others? Um, well, normally the blue ones are where you want to be at, but in all honesty, the prices just didn't come down that much from where they were before. Like right now, there are 32 tickets, and before. Uh, this is Scalding Tarn I'm talking about, Was is 32 tickets. Before the flashbacks, it was floating between, like, 35 and 40, going up and down. So I don't think there's any huge upside in specking on them, just because they really didn't crash that much uh, from being in the flashback drafts. But if you need them, I also think it's a fine time to buy them to play with. Uh, because they are slightly lower than they were before the flashbacks, but I wouldn't be looking to spend tons of money to invest in fetches on Magic Online. 
All right, next question from at Toolbar. How will enemy Fastlands be game changers in modern? The existing Fastlands don't see much play compared to Shocks. So we talked about this. I'm super hyped. The other two are not as hyped. No, I'm, uh, I'm hyped. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really hyped. To be fair, I may have been a bit hyperbolic. You know, Abzan going from 7% to 9% played <laughs> is a big deal to me, but most people won't care. <laughs> but that's still like a 30% increase in play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at Mean Mean Pork, most important question in the history of fish, cats or dogs? Dogs. Uh, also dogs. I don't like cats that much. Ooh, dogs. We're we're all dog people. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm not huge on cats. Although you know, don't bother me. I won't bother you. Wait. Have there been any <laughs> dogs in Magic? I haven't seen many dog there, cards. There's we have a, well, there's the new uh, there's the new like uh, artifact dog. I think that's a Isn't fox. That a wolf? fox? That's a fox. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we have werewolves. We've had fox. I know there was a harmless pack. That was a nice kitten. Where's our puppy card? <laughs> I think we have like a couple mastiffs. There's Those hounds. Are hounds are yeah, hounds yeah. are really a creature type. You could build a hound tribal deck. I looked into that for undisclosed reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, they really are all hounds. There's literally not a dog. If all you right. find we, a dog, we need like a pup token, like zero one. <laughs> <laughs> if if you find a dog creature in Magic, then more power to you. You can post in the comments, but all I'm seeing is hounds. Uh, uh, at Josh Sisk. Do you think the new version of Puka Trade is a good way to turn paper cards into digital ones, or vice versa? Man, I have read a lot of people freaking out about the, the new version of Puka Trade being borderline unusable. I don't use it myself, so this isn't first-hand experience, but just from what I'm reading, it sounds like their changeover to their new site has not went smoothly, and I've heard from a lot of people that specifically the trading Magic Online cards has been basically unusable. The bots that they use have never been online or very rarely online. They have problems with cards being on want lists and then when you go to submit them, they're not on the want list anymore and it gives you an error. So I would wait a little while for things to kind of smooth out before trying it personally. Wow. So this is more of like, that's more of like just technical things rather than, you know, not just being able to do it rather than uh, just a success rate of trading for digital stuff. Yeah, they build a whole new site, and apparently it's very yeah, yeah. buggy and has a lot of problems that has been making the site very difficult to use. So I think just for your own peace of mind, you might want to wait for them to get some stuff fixed, or you might just drive yourself crazy trying to work through all the bugs and trade stuff. All right, and last question from Josh P. Looking to invest in a Kaya foil for my commander deck and as an investment, current price is around 180. Should I wait for it to drop, or is now a good price to buy in on it? If you see it dropping, what price should I purchase at? I think we talked about conspiracy foils for two casts, and I mean, really, foils don't don't decrease that much. I mean, it's a really slow, gradual decrease, as we've seen with conspiracy one. Maybe with the increased supply and and just you know, more people opening it. I mean, I just, I don't even know at this point because it just seems like they're, all the foils are just really scarce. Um, and you have to take into account, you know, vendors. I mean, there's just like a really quick transition between, uh, you know, there was Eldritch Moon, then Conspiracy, now Kaladesh. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of time, uh, but, you know, maybe if foils continue to increase, 
uh, vendors will keep opening them. But even then, there, you have to consider that the other thing you have to consider is just there's no redemption from MTGO. So, I mean, it's basically it is what it is. Yeah, I I don't really know what to make of it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't expect to see a super huge drop. I think the uniqueness of it might be another reason that Kaya in specific doesn't decrease and even looking at eBay that might be your best goal I've seen some copies a lot of them are going like 180 190 but there have been some in the last couple days slip through at like 115 150 130 so you might be able to look on eBay and just catch a good deal in that price range and then I would definitely just grab it if you can find a good deal like that on eBay yeah, because, I mean, realistically, even if you're grabbing on the higher end, you're not really losing much even over the course of a few years. I mean, some of the even the first conspiracy foils are just coming down now a few years later and not even by that much. Uh, I think yep. that wraps up all of our fish mail. Ooh, good fish mail. Uh, so I, I think uh, I think that wraps things up for this week, right? Anything out the door? More spoilers next week. Stay tuned all this week and all next week. We should have new cards rolling out. So definitely exciting to see what else is in Kaladesh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's going to be great. There's going to be a ton more stuff. I mean, it's probably going to be like the whole set by the time we do it next week. But, <laughs> you know, you know how that works out. So, yeah, stay tuned next week. And uh, I think this is going to be the crew signing out for this week. We will see you all next time. <laughs>